Hey everybody and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host Chef AJ and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. My guests today are both amazing. I have two guests. We mentioned them on the show yesterday because our guest yesterday was also a doctor from Loma Linda, Dr. Hans Steele, and they are the authors of the Alzheimer's solution. They are known as Team Sherzai collectively, but individually they're known as Dr. Dean and Dr. Aisha Sherzai. Please welcome them. So nice to see you. It's wonderful to be here. So nice to see you, Chef Aju. We love you. We love everything you're doing. And it's so wonderful to connect with you and everyone oh, here. You, you are too kind. So I, I have to ask you this question because I have no idea why Dr. Juan Weiss said this. So I recently finished hosting a, a summit on GI health. It was a nine-day summit. And he was a late add-on because he had something to say about the soil having a microbiome, just as like our GI tract did. And he said, well, are you interviewing the Sure's Eyes? And I said, no, they're neurologists. Why am I going to interview them on a GI health summit? He goes, you got to interview them and well you weren't available in the time frame but i have to know what do neurologists know about gi health well the the connection between the well we are a closed system the, we, you know the, this human body did not evolve in separate parts a stomach separate from the heart from separate from the brain but i i hate to you know put it out there for the other doctors but the rest of the body is there to carry the brain and the and and the uterus and, 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 and the rest of us, the males are useless because women are better in both of those uh, as far as reproduction and the brain function. And I really mean it. And I, there, we can do a whole different section as far as women leadership and, and the fact that all the paradigms of leadership are around women. But connection between the different parts of the body and the brain are um, clearly central. One of the most important ones is the GI system. You're, the purpose of the body and the brain is to survive, right? We survive and reproduce. Nothing more important than the GI system. So from very early on, the brain and the stomach were closely tied in every way you can think of, From a, not just from the fact that the food that's digested is uh, to its uh, elemental parts, then is transferred to the blood, which is then transferred through the blood-brain barrier, which is then transferred to 87 billion neurons and 10 times that you know, uh, glial cells. But it's actually connected at the neural level. You know, there's a reason people call the stomach the second nervous system. It is incredibly connected as far as the nervous system is concerned. It actually creates neurotransmitters like serotonin. In fact, we make more serotonin peripherally in the GI system than we do in the brain. Of course, that's a little more complicated than that. So it doesn't mean that because you create serotonin in the GI system, it's going to go to the brain, but it has its own nervous system. And its nervous system through the vagus nerves and other ways, actually affects your emotions and your affect. And your own nervous system through the fight or flight mechanism, in fact, constantly affects your GI system, not at the level of just how the stomach works, you know, excessively or no, at the level of how it's absorbing and what's it's absorbing. It's from a survival to a thriving state. So I said a lot there, but the summary is, it is incredibly intrinsically connected, those two systems, the GI and the brain. Wow. I wish I wish we could have had you on for that because it's I, I know it's, they call it like a two-way superhighway. It's it's that and much more. Um, it's not like a one highway. It, so the GI system also connects to the brain through the autonomic system. It also connects to the brain through the endocrine system. It, in fact, connects to the brain through the immune system. So it's a multidimensional approach between the two. That's fascinating. I, I just think that's so cool. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, your book, tell us about your book a little bit. And I've been posting links to it so people can check it out. 
Thank you for that. Um, so yes, we're very proud of that. Um, our book is called The Alzheimer's Solution. It was published in September of 2017. Um, and it was a culmination of about 15 years of our work in this area. You know, um, as you may know, and I, I know Chef AJ, you've interviewed a lot of doctors and uh, you know, we have a very particular system of educating doctors. We go to medical school, we go through residency, and most of us are not really well trained as far as lifestyle and prevention is concerned. So for us, it was, you know, a discovery on the path because we were both in the field of neurology and brain health. And when it comes to diseases like Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, it's a, it's a very dark world. You know, unfortunately, we don't have any treatments for it. Um, you know, so many different clinical trials and billions of dollars have been spent and we don't have a single medication to treat this devastating disease. And yet when we looked around, when we studied more, starting with uh, the Rancho Bernardo study in UCSD, and then we started learning more about the Framingham Heart Study and in all these long-term epidemiological studies, there was a very strong connection between living a healthy life and having a healthy brain. And when it came to diseases like Alzheimer's disease, we found out through other people's research and then conducting our own research that if you live a healthy life, which means eating a good diet, exercising, managing your stress, sleeping well, and keeping your mind active, up to 90% of this devastating disease can be prevented. So we chronicled all of that in the book and um, we're happy to say that it's been amazing how we connected with everybody else in this space and um, the work continues. We currently have the largest study in the beach cities, uh, which is Redondo, Manhattan and Hermosa Beach in Southern California, where we're implementing lifestyle and we're seeing cognitive outcomes in a large population. So we're very excited to be in this position now. <clears throat> we actually took this path in a very systematic way. Um, 15 years ago, I, I was at NIH, as you know, the center of all research in the experimental therapeutics branch. It doesn't get any more esoteric and clinical trials and drugs and even uh, BDNF being injected into the brain uh, tissue itself and clinical trial after clinical trial. And from there, we went to UCSD where we both, both did research, uh, which was the number one neuroscience program in the country. But we were so disillusioned that about 15 years ago, we decided that we're going to take the path less traveled. Mm -hmm. We came to Loma Linda to study lifestyle and it's been absolutely amazing. And, right. and we're actually one step ahead in the sense that we are actually now applying it in the communities. Aisha um, did a culinary uh, training as well in two, yeah. two centers while she was doing a fellowship. And we both have masters in, in uh, epidemiology. But the most important thing is this right here. What you're doing, uh, I, and I'm not just saying this for your sake, I'm a pretty blunt person, communicating the science and the information clearly is more important than the esoterics. That's true. And we love the fact that you are continuously bringing information to the public. And that's, and we've kind of, we, we had to be pulled into that realm, but we realized that that's how you get information out there. I think this is true public health to be a channel between, you know, those echo chambers of science where you're seeing the effect of lifestyle in brain health and, you know, general health and bringing it to the public. So this is exciting. It, I'm glad. It we... seems that everybody knows somebody now with either Alzheimer's or some yeah. form of dementia. Why is it so prevalent and how prevalent is it actually? 
It's the fastest growing epidemic in the West. Um, every um, you know, uh, 60 seconds, actually that's an understatement. Somebody's being diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's. Let me just differentiate between the two. Dementia is an umbrella category. It's like saying cancer and Alzheimer's is a subtype, but it's a major subtype. 60 to 70% of all dementias is Alzheimer's. And it's, it's um, right now about um, throughout the world, 35 million uh, people in the United States, nearly 6 million people suffer from dementia and it's uh, growing. In fact, it's the only disease that we have an increasing up to 145% increase in the last 10 years uh, um, uh, increase in prevalence and also death rate from Alzheimer's. So the answer we've had up to now is next next drug and the next drug and the next drug and the next drug. And we, we learned early that that's not going to work. This is a more complex disease that's a cumulative trauma disease, meaning that as we get older, if we don't do the right things, it over, you know overwhelms our reserves. So it's gonna be a multi-dimensional approach. Um, and so we took on this approach. Otherwise, nearly 400 drugs that worked on mice, those poor mice, never translated to humans. Um, and and that's, um, that's why we, we think that this is the approach. Oh, and if we don't make the change in the communities, it's going to absolutely overwhelm our, our communities. You know, are the terms Alzheimer's and dementia, are they the same? Because you often hear them used interchangeably by people. Yeah, so Alzheimer's is the bigger category. No, and dementia. Oh, sorry, dementia is the bigger category. And Alzheimer's is a type of dementia. And there are multiple types of dementias, like frontotemporal lobe dementia, vascular dementia, Parkinson's dementia, Lewy body dementia, and some other esoteric ones as well. But we hear, about, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia is interchanged because about, you know, uh, 70 to 80% of all dementia is Alzheimer's disease, just the most common type. Wow. And once you get it, can it be reversed? Well, that's what we've shown. Um, uh, that it, so, so we have to say that once you get it, once you're diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia, by that time, a large portion of the brain has already been damaged. And it's very irresponsible to say that you can reverse Alzheimer's, but you can definitely prevent it and you can definitely slow down the progression with lifestyle. We... This is a controversial statement I'm about to make, and, and, and I, I, I wholeheartedly and lovingly make that, this controversial statement. We're very worried about people making these bombastic statements that they can reverse Alzheimer's, and we know why they're doing that, because it's a, it's a money-making endeavor to, to get people who have no hope to, to, to kind of bring them into your program. And this, that's dangerous, it's irresponsible, it's unethical, and even to even hint at it, people who are not even neurologists, um, is, is, is dangerous. When we wrote the book, they asked us if, if we could just hint at the fact that if you could reverse the Alzheimer's, you would sell an extra 2 million copies of the book. We said, we can't. I mean, it's nobody hard. challenges you in today's environment. You can say whatever you want, especially something like that, which is in the medical field. We said, we can't, and it's unresponsible. But it's, it's enough to say that we can prevent it. Absolutely. I mean, we're talking about cognitive decline, which is ubiquitous. And so MCI, pre-dementia, mild cognitive impairment, we're talking about nearly 20% uh, of those over 65 who have MCI. And, and it goes, doubles from there on after the age of 65. We can reverse that. We can significantly, isn't that enough? We don't need to, you know, uh, play the marketing game. So that's why we've actually moved on to the next thing, which is we know whole food plant-based works. 
we know if we can teach the communities to change one little factor, 10% of their diet, hopefully 100%, but if we change 10%, that's 10% from a disease that's devastating communities throughout the country. So that's where we are with the, with the now, what we're talking about is for Alzheimer's, but actually it's for most dementias. Some of them less, some of them more. For example, frontotemporal lobe dementia is more complicated and more genetically driven. So it's, it's going to respond to lifestyle significantly, but less so. But the rest of dementias, almost all of them respond to, especially Alzheimer's, which is the biggest one, to lifestyle. And we are so pleased um, that it's kind of sticking now. We have studies going on throughout the countries, uh, throughout the country, and, uh, and we are welcoming other communities that want to join us. We will do the work, we'll do, we'll do the fundraising, whatever it needs to be done to, to join communities and, and build this endeavor. That's your Healthy Minds initiative that you talked about right before the show? Yes, ma'am. That's right. Okay, I'll post a link to that again as well. So Happy Vegan Couple Who's Watching Live says, this week, public television had a show on protecting the brain and not a word was said about nutrition. What <sighs> does Team Shares I think about that? I'm familiar with that. That's pretty common. Um, and I, I think um, several reasons. First of all, um, you know, the authorities don't really trust people that they can make changes for themselves as far as diet is concerned. And uh, because of all the controversy, sometimes just people close their eyes and they don't want to even address it. We, we all know how important food is. It's something you put in your body three or four times a day. And there's no shortage of any data from decades ago that shows that when you change your diets to not necessarily even a whole food plant-based diet, but a little plant forward, it makes a huge uh, difference. Like for example, there was a study that was done that looked at the mind diet, which is a Mediterranean-ish diet. Uh, it's, a, it's a combination of the DASH diet and mind diet. And when people adhere to that diet, they reduce their risk of developing Alzheimer's disease by 53%. Now that was mind diet. We know that if you go whole food plant-based, you can do even better. So even with a mediocre diet, if you can reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease, why would you not even highlight something like that? What medication does that? There's nothing that does that. Uh, Aisha was the PI, the, the main, uh, the first author of a, one of the largest studies in the country, California teacher study, looking at diet and stroke. And stroke is not just stroke, it's vascular disease, right? Which is the most common factor. And 133,000 people. And again, a Mediterranean diet reduced the chance of the, the uh, stroke and vascular disease by 44%. But, but, but here's the rub. When you do factor analysis and looking at what part of Mediterranean diet, mm -hmm. I, I mean, most people don't even know what, when you look at what part of Mediterranean diet, it's consistently 100% plants. Yeah, absolutely. It's the greens, it's the beans, it's the berries, the nuts, the seeds, and exclusion of animal products, exclusion of processed foods. And, 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 and the simple carbs, not carbs. Don't de we don't need to demonize carbs or fiber. It's simple carbs, which is processed. Yeah, but white bread, white rice, and things yeah. of that nature. Right. I always heard the whiter your bread, the sooner you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was Jack LaLanne, yeah. uh, his yeah. wife I actually had on the show. So JB, who's watching live, said, my husband is soon to be 85. He's showing signs of memory loss. This has been getting progressively worse over the last eight years. Can I find things in the Shirzai's book to help him? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Of course. Of um, course. Yeah. So, um, so by the way, here's a, I think you're going to be the first person to announce this. Our second book is coming out in March 23rd. And <laughs> hey, that's the day after, okay, th this is funny that you would say that day. 
I, 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 this is, I don't know if you ever heard the word, but shared. I'm literally booked on this show through March 22nd. Do you want the 23rd to come back and talk? We are yes. coming back. We're coming back. We're there. There. <laughs> that, I mean, that is just bizarre that that is the first available date. I'm putting you, that is, yes, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, so the thing about the book is that the, the Alzheimer's solution has the why and, and a lot of the how, but the second book is completely the how plus they'll get us in person Plus, it's a multi-medium approach, plus an, an incredible app, the only app of its type that's actually been tested in the community, all free, by the way, not the book, the book, it's not up to me, but everything else, because we want to make sure that this translates in the community. So we're very excited about that. But in the, in the book that we have, which is Alzheimer's Solution right now, all of the information is there. Right. And by the way, just to allay your fears, not that it's, it's bad to make money, that's not majority of what we do goes back to the Healthy Minds Initiative and, and, and empowering communities. Um, so if you want to do something in your community and join us, um, uh, we would love to as well. That's fantastic. Okay, so do genes matter when it comes to whether or not we get this disease? So if our parents had it, uh, what are our chances of having it? Because my, my mom definitely had it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so genes are important. Of course, we're all genetic beings. Um, and genes essentially in Alzheimer's disease, there's no one gene. There's actually a combination of different genes that confer risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, there are certain genes that stand out. So for example, you know, there's one that's called APOE4. If you have one copy, your risk goes high. If you have two copies, your risk can go up to, you know, high, as high as 12 to 20% times. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get it. Um, and when you look at the combination of genes affecting risk, these are genes that are responsible for, say, for example, waste disposal or inflammation or oxidation or transport of cholesterol from cell to cell. And so these genes are affected by everything we're doing in our lives, by the foods we eat, the way we exercise, the way we sleep, the way we keep our minds active. Um, so, you know, making sure that we understand that our lifestyle and every activity affects these genes, activates or deactivates them, gives us a lot more control to uh, defend ourselves from Alzheimer's. Great. So Carb, who's watching live, asks, what are the best foods and supplements to help prevent Alzheimer's and dementia? And for those who already have it, can these foods and supplements turn it around or prevent it from getting worse? Mm. So uh, we're not about reductionism, although we will talk about some reductionism, uh, but in the saying that, yeah, these foods are better than others, but I, we'd rather have people focus on food in general. Food in general is important. Um, uh, you know, blueberries are fantastic, but if you're having a burger and fries on the side that, you know, uh, uh, that's got 1500 calories, and then you're eating a cup of berries, it's not going to do much good. So it's, it's how you, your relationship is with food that's important. The foods are profoundly important. And, and we know that fruits and vegetables, I, mean, I know we've, we've heard this many, many times, as much as it is important for the rest of the body, it is exponentially more important for the brain. Mm -hmm. This is why. Your, your brain is three pounds, 2% of your body's weight. Now, this little organ consumes 25% or more of your energy on any one time. In fact, it does some of its best work at night while you're sleeping. In fact, the reason you're sleeping is to give the brain the time to rest and recover. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, your whole very existence. So this brain is going to be overwhelmed. And by the way, you weren't expected to live past 30. I'm sorry for those people who are going to bring in all this. You weren't. You were supposed to run away from the bear and tiger, mate and die. And 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 then if you didn't, you weren't much use. Uh, but now we want to live to 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 and beyond. And we and we we hope to live vibrantly and 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 cognitively actively. Okay. So to do that, don't rely on these paleo studies or uh, histori historical studies because evolution didn't care about you living past. You have to rely on mechanism. Your brain is overwhelmed. So what do you do to lower inflammation? Over 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. What do you do to reduce oxidation? Fat. I'm going to throw a little, reduce fat, saturated fats. What do you do to reduce glucose dysregulation? Again, fat and sugar. What do you do to, to reduce uh, um, lipid and uh, glucose dysregulation? Same thing again. Those are the factors, Oxi uh, glucose dysregulation, uh, fat, uh, fat or lipid dysregulation, oxidation, uh, and inflammation. What do you do? Well, it's food. Of course, there, we have this, this acronym, which is NEURO, N-E-U-R-O, nutrition, exercise, unwind. For us, unwind is not just about reducing stress. It's actually more importantly, way more importantly, increasing good stress. We'll talk, come to that. Ours, restorative sleep, not just sleeping. I can knock anybody out with medicine. It doesn't mean they have gone through the five cycles of deep sleep, which is incredibly important. And last is optimizing mental activity, which is, that to me is most important. But nutrition, something that you consume as a, as a drug, as either, is either poison or medicine, three, four, five times a day. And if you're eating foods that increase oxidation, it exponentially increases in a couple of days, let alone years. Mm -hmm. If you're eating something that increases inflammation, it exponentially increases. So I want people to get that relationship. In fact, we give talks in high schools and even you know middle schools about this, that they've done studies in 12-year-olds that have had you know, a regular standard American diet, the SAD diet. They have found white matter disease in their brain. Forget about normal you know, ADHD and stuff. At that age. At that age. Yeah. So food is a profoundly important. You can start it any day and absolutely start reversing the damage and rebuilding the brain uh, right. because it's that resilient as well. You mentioned that sleep is really important and Sharon is asking, are there certain foods that can actually help people sleep better? Um, th there's not a lot of evidence to show the effect of food on sleep pattern, but we do know that the timing of eating matters a lot. So eating too close to sleeping time actually keeps you awake because as we grow older, it's not necessarily the, you know, the borborygmy or the sound of your stomach, you know, keeping you awake, but that energy that you consume right before sleeping actually can rev up your, your energy levels and not let you sleep. And I think we all know that caffeine is a no-no, especially in the afternoons, not drinking any caffeine. Um, but, you know, the, the things like um, some people say that bananas are really good or, you know, pistachios are really good because or it has melatonin and things like that. Those are those are minor. I think the most important thing is, you know, eating a clean diet throughout the day, stopping your, your snacking or eating at least three to four hours before bedtime. And if you're super hungry, something really bland, something that is uh, relatively high in complex carbohydrates and not in fat is a good thing right before bedtime. So like oatmeal or banana. 
or maybe to oatmeal with banana. Exactly. Yes. 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 That's yes. even better. Cognitive decline really seems to be associated with aging. Does it have to be that way? For everybody. Nope. No, no, no. So, so for the standard person, cognitive decline starts in our 20s. So the first 20 years is a building cycle, massive building. And, and we're, we're actually working on a book on that as well, uh, which is the kind of things that happen in the first nine months before birth and in the first year, then the first five years, which actually reprograms itself. And uh, there's a cell death cycle, incredible things. And then the myelination. Okay, that's the first 20 years. After the age of 20 or so, again, these numbers are not hard and fast, we start actually losing some cells. And on top of that, the focus factor is affected. The focus centers of the brain as well as life affecting focus. Focus is the gatekeeper of all consciousness. So that's gonna be affected. Your memory is gonna be affected. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, there's some shrinkage if we don't do the right things. And that shrinkage continues and that damage continues and that uh, um, uh, inflammation and all these things continue and there is a decline for, for average person. And the decline is usually slowness in memory, slowness in processing, slowness in retrieval, all of these things as, um, uh, and attention as well. But he, you, you remember I just said about the, the, how much the brain is overwhelmed, the 25% energy on. Here's the positive side. You have this 87 billion neurons, each of them that can make a couple of connections or as many as 30, thousand connections. Now those 30,000 connections, do the math. That's, that's way more. If somebody makes those connections, those are way more than what you had even in your twenties. And here's the beauty of it. As much as people are arguing about whether you grow new cells in the brain later in life, it's not that important. Yeah, you do, but it's not that significant. What you do have control over is making connections by the billions, by the trillions. How do you make those connections? First, you have to set the environment where the damage is not happening and the environment where growth can happen. What determines that? Good food, stress management, or you know, reducing bad stress, increasing good stress, and sleep. Those are the things that create the platform. And, and, and then what grows the connections is exercise and mental activity. Yeah. And they've done studies of people who... Uh, like, for example, the nun study. So these nuns uh, dedicated their lives and their, their bodies even for autopsy after they passed away to science. And, uh, you know, they, they wanted to look at their brain function. And they found out, so I'm kind of summarizing the study, that the nuns who were very active socially, they were engaged, they had higher vocabulary, even though they had the pathology of Alzheimer's disease in their brain when they did autopsies, in real life, they never showed it. Why? Because they had built all of this cognitive reserve during their life. So the more active we are, the more, the more involved we are, the better we eat, the more exercise we do, we actually protect our brain from manifesting Alzheimer's and dementia, even if we have the pathology. Now, these nuns ha had one of those five elements which was mental activity. That's right. And even with that one element, they were able to create enough reserve to withstand Alzheimer's. Now, what if they had great nutrition? What if they had better exercise? What if they had, you know, uh, you know stress management? Oh, I don't know how much stress nuns have, but sometimes maybe they have a lot of stress. I don't know. Uh, uh, but that could be exponentially more beneficial. So uh, we definitely think that as you grow older, 
if you live the standard Western life or standard life in general, you will have decay. There's no question of that until some of us will be overwhelmed by it because our reserves aren't enough. And some of us will have decline, but the rest can actually continually grow their cognition well into their eighties, nineties and beyond. So how is the pandemic and physical distancing affecting people cognitively? Cause there are some people like that, you know, have been isolating because they have to for like nine months now. It's actually, a, it's, it's been a positive experience for, for a lot of people. Of course, I mean, with the stresses of being distant from everyone, but I think the, the incentive to connect with other individuals using, um, you know, digital platforms has really challenged a lot of people. And we look forward to that kind of cognitive challenge where people are learning new skills and techniques and being connected. As a matter of fact, um, be, becoming connected to people around the world through, you know, mediums such as this one is has been a gift for a lot of individuals, you know, being hermits and being introverts, not getting out of your house and not really pushing yourself to engage is not an excuse anymore. Um, so it's been really positive. Um, luckily, you know, the children of individuals who are not very tech savvy, they've been really helpful. They've been coming forward. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very encouraged with it. Yeah, I, I, I tell you. Um, so, Yes, let's not forget about the negative. Um, uh, people who have had a tendency for depression or anxiety or were at the edge, they, they were pushed into it. I mean, that's very important for us to address. It's important for us to reach out for those people that all of that's happened. Uh, we just wanted to focus on the positive going forward. I think this medium or this forced acceptance of this medium has put a lot of people that would have been introverted into uh, uh, this connectivity that's going to really help out a huge number of people. Right. Uh, and I think this is going to continue even after this uh, COVID situation is over. That's great. Shamila, who's watching live, says, what, what causes Alzheimer's? What really causes it? Mm -hmm. So it's a multi-domain factor. So there are diseases where they're completely driven by genes. Huntington's disease is, is such a disease where if you have a particular gene abnormality on chromosome 4, your children will get, or your child that has the same gene will get it 100%. So that's a genetic disease. And, and people who have that kind of a, a, a gene will also get it. We even know what age they'll get it. But Alzheimer's, only 3% of Alzheimer's is driven by those kind of genes, only 3%. Those are presenilin-1, presenilin-2, and APP genes. But the other 90 to 97% are polygenetic and lifestyle risk genes which means that if you have, let's say, let's take APOE4, which is the most common one, right? The one that's got most effect on Alzheimer's. Now that's a gene that codes for a protein that is used for transferring fat between the, in the body, right? And, and it does a poor job of it. APOE2, there are three, so APOE2, APOE3, APOE4. APOE2 does an amazing job. People who have APOE2 are protected. They are very low chance of getting Alzheimer's. APOE3 is a wash, but APOE4 higher. Why? It does a poor job of its, you know, transferring lipids, so then it accumulates in the brain and clogs up arteries. That's a big, incredible factor. Lifestyle affects your genes. So what affects the risk is food, inflammation, oxidation, you know, fat dysregulation. That affects it. Trauma to the head vascular disease in the head, 
stress and what it does through the body, through the hypothalamus and the pituitary, that affects the, the, the brain. And then the other one is lack of mental stimulation. Right. Repeatedly, in fact, the latest study from, was it JAMA or um, that showed that the one thing that stands out above all is your early cognitive activity. How much did you challenge your brain? Why? Because of that connectivity I spoke about before. The more your cells are connected because you challenge your brain because you learned three languages or four languages, or the fact that you ran a company or you, you led a, a non-for-profit or you, you, you know, things that really challenge you throughout the brain, that's incredibly protective. The reverse is those who didn't do those things are much, much higher risk. What effect does social media have on the brain? Because I find that now that I don't do Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, I'm much, it seems like I'm much more cognitively, I mean, it feels like it's been a, a blessing to my brain. Like I'll do things like I'll play words with friends, but that's like really, like that seems to be helping me brain-wise. Yeah, I think, I think it has its positive aspects and it has its mm -hmm. negative aspects and it just depends <clears throat> on how you use it, right? Mm -hmm. Mindless scrolling is just terrible. Yeah. Um, you know, you're distracted and um, I think the algorithms that are, um, not to get too uh, con controversial here, but, you know, the algorithms for social media is they kind of find out what you're interested in and they present you the things that you're interested in. So in, in no way are you being challenged, you're just kind of being fed the same thing that you're interested and so cognitive cognitive activity reduces and you just got, kind of get hooked and stuck to a screen there's no conversation there's no interaction so in that aspect it can actually be really unhealthy and especially for teenagers and younger individuals who just mindlessly scroll through page and page and page and it significantly affects their interaction. As a matter of fact, there've been some studies that show that vocabulary goes down, um, eye contact goes down, people, especially children and younger individuals and adolescents have difficulty communicating their feelings, um, uh, et cetera. But on the other side of it, and that's something that mm -hmm. Dean and I are very, very passionate about is that social media can be used as an profound medium to spread public health and information and creating a tribe and a community, especially during unprecedented times such as this one. Um, so I guess it's important for all of us to be aware of our usage, the type of material that we use, the type of people and platforms that we connect to. Um, and it's never a bad idea to keep a check on the amount of hours we spend on it and kind of, you know, maybe even setting a reminder or an alarm to say, like, for example, you can't really be on the screen for this many minutes. And it's, it's, it's much better if you connect with individually face to face or speak with them. I, I fully agree. I mean, the wonderfully stated, uh, it, I always say for the brain, the objective matters. So, uh, yesterday I did a session with uh, well and good and a huge session on serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, all these neurotransmitters and what can help. Well, at the corner, at the center of it is brain's objective. What's brain's objective? Brain's objective is to meet a goal. Set a goal, meet a goal. Literally, if we fix our brain around that concept, small incremental successes, that you've checked off the dopamine, you've checked off the serotonin, you've checked off the oxytocin, all of that. So by setting clear objectives. Now, anything that distracts creates objectives that are never met. You know, that's why the word multitasking is a four letter word for us. We, we are not good in spelling, but, <laughs> but um, so multi, there's no such thing as multitasking. It's doing multiple things badly. Right. And even people, whenever we say that somebody says, oh, but what about moms and stuff? No, there are moms that do multiple things in linear fashion 
get it done, check it off, go to the next thing. You know, that's great. Whenever you can clearly achieve something and check it off, you've just checked off the dopamine pathway and, and the happiness serotonin pathway. So the multitasking, chaotic, non-achievement basis of social media is destructive. I, I have to add, uh, most of the situations, most of the cases of people feeling that they have quote unquote dementia or memory problems stems from distraction. There is so much distraction in our lives. And like Dean was saying, uh, focus and attention is the gateway to memory. You can only memorize things if you're completely focused and you attend things. It's so normal to actually speak with somebody, but then you kind of see a glaze over their eyes and you know they're not really paying attention to you. They're probably thinking about something else and they can't wait to actually start talking about that thing. It's become a norm nowadays. And I think uh, practicing attention, practicing focus, uh, whether it's you know completely uh, getting rid of all the noise in your head and focusing on one thing, minimizing minimalism, organization, all of that helps significantly. You know, the people use these softwares like being present, being in the moment. What does that mean? It's literally that that thing in front of you. You know, when people say meditation, I say start with meditation of washing dishes. It's not about the dishes. It's about being able to block noise focus on the thing and go deep into the thought. Right. That's a higher level of activity that has nothing to do with washing dishes. That has nothing to do with, you know, any given activity in front of you. So coming back to what this question started with you and I go into is social media good? Yes. Is social media bad for your brain? Yes. It's how you use it and how you set objectives. Great, thank you. Linda says, is vascular dementia from saturated fat food intake and a cause of Alzheimer's? Saturated fat is a major cause of damage to the blood vessels. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, processed carbohydrates, you know, uh, un uh, refined carbohydrates is also. So it's multifactorial. So vascular dementia for people who don't know what it is, is the kind of dementia or cognitive impairment that is caused as a result of damage to the small blood vessels in the brain. Now we have about 400 miles worth of tiny little arteries that supply oxygen and nutrition to the brain, 400 miles, just imagine that. And the walls, you know, they're, they're so small that blood vessels kind of, you know, they are in a file and they move through it one after the another. And they're very fragile. They get damaged very easily and saturated fat causes inflammation and oxidation. And you get uh, what we call small silent strokes. You know, stroke is a condition where you have paralysis of the body or you can't speak or you can't see. But over time, if people have high saturated fat content in their blood or if they leave a, a lead a very unhealthy dietary lifestyle, they get damaged to these little arteries and they cause tiny little silent strokes. And over time, that results in cognitive impairment, memory problems, being slow, not being able to think properly, not being able to make decisions. So that's vascular dementia, yes. We see that fairly commonly. Yeah. I mean, and especially in, uh, and, and it's never diagnosed, but it's a, it's a predictor. It's, it's something that we can affect people right there when they start. And what are, these are the symptoms of vascular dementia or even prevascular dementia, which is vascular cognitive impairment. Slowness in speech, they call that bradyphrenia, bradykinesia, slowness in movement, slowness in thinking. So this person that you knew was like 
quick. And now it takes them a little longer to speak, a little longer to walk, a little longer to process. I mean, there are different ways that it can manifest as well, but that's a very common early sign. And I tell people, if you see that, this is the time to kind of make a difference right now. First, identify it, the extent and everything. Then let's make the change. Absolutely. Right. I just want to say, Dina says, every time I see the shares eyes, they look younger. I said the same thing before they Aww. came on, Dina. I said, you guys are aging backwards. <laughs> and she also wants to know, since we're talking about saturated fat, what are their thoughts on the saturated fat from nuts, seeds, avocado, and olives? And does the fat in these foods override the saturated fat, the better fat in those foods override the fact that they have saturated fat? That's a really good question. So um, yes, we want to avoid saturated fats as much as possible. And um, we've all agreed that meat, cheese, other dairy products and coconut oil, palm oil are major sources of saturated fats. Um, however, it's also important to consume some amounts of polyunsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats as well. Um, in most of the studies, the results actually showed that when saturated fat is replaced with monounsaturated fats, the outcomes are better. Um, but that's basically because you've switched. We don't really have much studies to show the lack of no, uh, uh, the lack of all kinds of fats, including saturated and polyunsaturated fats, being better for brain health. In most of the studies that, uh, you know, that look at Mediterranean diet, uh, Mayan diet, um, foods like almonds and walnuts and nuts and seeds actually improve cognitive outcomes, despite the fact that they have small amount of saturated fats in them. So whenever we come to any question, there are two things to ask, validity and, and, and efficacy. Anything, any argument, any political argument or otherwise, validity in our, and so is it valid? Is it true that zero fat is good? Is, and, and so to, to, to confirm truth, you need a lot of data to confirm that because then you're asking a lot of populations to avoid everything, a significant amount of foods. I mean, we're talking even avocados and things like that. And that kind of data does not exist. When, and, and if any, and there's no controversy there. I mean, I know that there's a little bit of controversy in the plant-based world. There isn't. We're talking about validity, the kind that moves public health. There isn't. Now, efficacy is another question, is, which is um, what works? What, and, and that's where you set your own efficacy parameters. For us, we're public health people. We see, we go to these communities it's not, we, it's not just racial, it's actually socioeconomic access and all of that, where every 65-year-old has cognitive decline and dementia. It's never recorded anywhere in public health. I mean, I got a PhD and MPH in, in public health, and I've never read anything about this. And I'm, we're seeing it ubiquitously. For us, anything that's going to may bring change there is important. So if the data is not that strong, and if I go to a community, uh, we, one of our studies is um, um, uh, lifestyle change and brain health in African-American churches um, throughout the country, it starts in LA, and it's centered around women because I think women leadership in healthcare is going to change healthcare. And if I go there, I say no salt, no sugar, zero fat of all types, and I list that, zero meat, zero cheese, zero butter, zero dairy, there's going to be zero shares. I efficacy. And I, I don't want this to be a, a, a unrefined, I'm using that uh, unrefined uh, uh, conversation of uh, talking heads exchanging. We're dealing with the people at the community public health level. Most of the people that are 
So a little emotional about this. There is no controversy. If people can have, and, and here's the second part of this, how much unsaturated fat, how much polyunsaturated fat, we don't know. Uh, if somebody has five vessel disease, three vessel disease, I agree, avoid everything. It's better than cardiovascular surgery. Well, you might need surgery plus that. But for the rest of the population, omega-3s in small amounts in, uh, in extra refined olive oil, we don't see any problem. We don't extra see data. Extra, what yeah. did I say? Refined. Oh, sorry about that. Unrefined. <laughs> extra virgin, unrefined. Yeah, uh, unrefined um, uh, uh, virgin. I think it's not only not bad, the data is not there to, for it to be bad. And it's also more efficacious for large populations where we're working. Sorry, right. long answer, but uh, that's what- Yeah, well, that's funny because that, that's funny because the next question from Faith was, what is the role of vegetable oil, including olive oil in a healthy brain protective diet? That's- yeah. Uh, yeah, great question. So again, um, in studies, they have only looked at uh, extra virgin olive oil compared to butter and other sources of saturated fats. And of course, you know, food is a spectrum, like Dean was saying. So compared to butter and lard, extra virgin olive oil is much better. Now, um, you know, it, it actually has improved the outcomes. Um, but again, we don't have any studies that show that no oil is actually better than extra virgin olive oil. Hopefully we will sometime, but that seems to actually be helpful. Mm -hmm. I, I, I definitely agree. Um, so um, as far as refined vegetable oils, like I said, again, to yeah, repeat this, other vegetable oils, it's such yeah. an important concept. There isn't much data, but there is also no data that uh, extra virgin olive oil is bad. And there's some data that it actually is good and we're seeing their results. Let me, let's talk about the mind diet. The one that's most famous, everybody keeps talking about the mind diet that reduced chance of Alzheimer's by 53%. That's right. In that diet, they even had chicken. I'm 100% sure, although I'm a scientist, so I can, that chicken had no benefit. Mm -hmm. in, fact, in fact, so I think it was in spite of chicken. That's right. So uh, in that diet, they had fish. In that diet, they had definitely lots of oils. Um, so we're saying let's move more plant-centered and, and, and I think that since the data on extra virgin olive oil is a little bit on the side of benefit, I'm, I'm okay with that. But why not just get it from Whole Foods? Because I, I guess, because the yeah. next question we had is, is there a link between obesity and Alzheimer's? And, and, and I work exclusively with people trying to lose weight. And I've never had success with anybody losing weight eating processed oils. I mean, if they're not found in nature, yeah. don't you think that we, we couldn't just get everything we need from the olive oil, from eating the olive, from the, you know, you know from that Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Of course, I think that's that's the ideal, right? We're talking about the ideal diet. An ideal diet is an unprocessed plant-based diet. Um, uh, but, you know, when you look at population studies and when you look at behavioral models of change in the communities, mm -hmm. you just work with, you meet people where they are, right? And in an environment where they're bombarded with food advertisements and all these conflicting information, you kind of find out what the next best step is for people. And it seems that most of the time, the, the battle or the, the ultimate effort is at um, replacement and getting rid of that sense of deprivation for people and teaching them how to cook and how to eat. So Dean and I work at that community level. And like, like we said, when we go to different communities and churches, you know, and, and you see the kind of dietary patterns that they follow, 
um, we kind of show them like this is the next step. So for example, letting go of butter to extra virgin olive oil is the next step. But I agree with you, Chef H. I think the ideal diet should be one that is unprocessed. But 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 so here I'll, I'll go a little counter to that a little bit. I think that the data on extra virgin olive oil isn't that bad. Um, so I'm, by the way, we're not sponsored by anybody. Nobody, nothing. Um, uh, so um, we're not getting paid by so by olive oil companies, whatever they are. But I tell you this: in small amounts, yes. Now, as far as calorie, you hit a very, very important yeah, point. As far as weight gain, we know that the weight to if, if weight is a factor. So here's how we fail our subjects, our patients. We conf- we confound objectives: healthy weight environment this that's why 90 percent of diets failed and actually 85 to 90 percent of diets fail uh, short term they all succeed long term they all fail. why because we confound objectives if the objective is to weight lose weight i fully agree with you but now even within that you have to take into consideration the person's previous behavioral models if a person to go from a whole food plan sorry, sorry, to go from a standard american diet and food desert in san bernardino mm. to a whole food plant-based diet I think here's a, a very controversial statement. I'm, we're going to lose a lot of people. It's the most arrogant thing ever. Because we, we live in Redondo Beach. We have a house on a beach. We have, we, we, we've done a PhD and a master's. And for me to say, oh, you must pick, pick, you know, follow us the way we, we, you know, we say you should follow, it doesn't meet the number of limitations to behavior change. I'm a behavioral neurologist. It doesn't meet that. So we really have to meet the people where they are. The data should run the, the and, and if, if it's calories, yes. And even there, you are the expert in this. I mean, we've followed you for years and your amazing work. You recognize that you can't just throw the kitchen sink at everybody, the same cookie cutter, you know, zero. Uh, every, you have to adjust to them to make sure that they succeed. Um, so that's the complexity that we come at. Um, I hope that was, uh, uh, you know, we kind of talk about this a little kind of convolutedly because it is that important. Uh, it has become a point of consternation in the plant-based world, and it shouldn't be. Yeah. It's a three-dimensional chess, not a, you know, two-dimensional chess. So, Well, that's why I think, like you say, you, you got to find out what the patient's goals and objectives are. Because I recently yes. interviewed Robbie and Cyrus for the Truth About Weight Loss Summit, and they find with their people with diabetes, they, they have a real trouble uh, reversing their insulin sensitivity with any amount of oil. So I think it just depends on what the person's goals are and their, what their health is. Absolutely. I fully agree. Completely. I fully agree. Absolutely. So it, I don't know if this is within your area of, of something you talk about, but there's a couple of questions on ADD and ADHD. Is that something you ever deal with in your practices? We do. Of course. We do, of course. Okay. Yeah. So, so people are asking if you have that, are you, at, are you more predisposed to Alzheimer's later on? And there's somebody watching said her daughter has, is whole food plant-based, is, is ADHD and on Adderall and still is very unfocused. So any suggestions for people that are suffering from those conditions? Uh, it, first and foremost, sorry, do you mind? Uh, no, 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 of uh, course. Then, it's, so. it's your area anyway. You, you actually <laughs> see patients with ADD and ADHD in the clinic. First and foremost, they have to be diagnosed accurately. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll give a caveat. You take young boys who are hunter-gatherers by nature, or actually that's a lie, they're gatherers 
mostly. There was there was the whole paleontological history was wrong. Um, and so that's another discussion. Uh, another discussion. <laughs> but they're very hyper to begin with. And you put them in a room for eight hours with 30 other kids and you ask them to stay calm. And if they're not calm, there is Adderall. Pump them up. That's more common than you can ever imagine. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that there is no real ADHD and ADD. There is. Absolutely. My point here being, it has to be diagnosed, get a second opinion, go to a place where people actually know the disease pattern and, and, and identify it well. And then for those that need medicine, absolutely. Now, for a great many people, it's nutrition, you know, that we talked about giving the kid with, with the young boy a uh, high sugar diet. And they go into class and they're supposed to stay calm. They're supposed to get, you know, they get a high fat bacon and, 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 and sugary food and all that. And they're supposed to stay calm. That's not going to happen. So food has an incredible immediate and long-term effect. But it's even more than that beyond food. It's the pattern of attention that's set, the mechanism of attention that's set early on or at any age for that matter, but especially early on. People come to us and say, are video games good or bad? Like we just talked about social media. Well, the answer is E, yes, all, all of the above. If, it, if there are video games that build focus and attention, they're amazing and there will be better and better ones for that. If there are ones that are just causing chaos in the mind, focus is the gatekeeper of consciousness mm. and we don't focus enough on focus. We, nobody ever, in fact, the first things that kids should, should be trained on is how to develop focus, how to maintain focus, how to you know, develop it further and further as they go along. And anything that affects focus is going to deter memory, attention, everything. And it becomes the foundation of a system later in life, which makes you more vulnerable later in life. So the, the answer to it is several fold. Exercise is an amazing tool that actually brings the body around one behavior and then focuses it to one outcome. In fact, we know that its effect on dopamine and serotonin is primarily through focus initially. Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing. So that's one thing. The other thing is daily activities, short duration, because nobody goes into deep med meditation long-term, but short duration, not just have to be meditation, of focused behavior mm -hmm. in children and in adults and everybody. I think one of the most important things we teach is that, is how to build your focus centers. And if you do that, then it can actually really help with ADD and ADHD or the spectrum around it. And of course, uh, eating a plant-based diet is, is oh. super important because our brain, you know, it, it, it needs, it's, a, it's, it's very fancy. So our brain is a really, really fancy organ. It needs a sit down dinner with like three or four courses coming in through. That's why eating an unprocessed diet provides all those nutrients slowly and gradually so the brain can actually process it, right? If you're eating too much saturated fats or sugar, your brain just goes in a frenzy. Forget about focusing on anything. So it's wonderful that this person, I'm sorry, I forgot the name, um, you know, how it carries the diagnosis of ADD and is eating on uh, <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> focusing on the name. <laughs> Such a hypocrite. But no, it's wonderful to actually eat a plant-based diet. That's great. But let, let's go back to a question I think we skimmed over. Is there a link between obesity and developing things like dementia and Alzheimer's? Oh, absolutely. And there's been multiple studies um, in different forms showing that people who carry a lot of body fat 
are at a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And it has to do with multiple things. So first of all, you know, the fat in itself acts as a like an endocrine bomb. It creates these hormones that cause a lot of inflammation at the neuronal level, at the vascular level. Um, and then obviously when people are overweight or obese, they also have metabolic syndrome, which means insulin resistance and cholesterol abnormalities. And all of this actually is just the perfect storm to cause the development of these uh, um, plaques and tangles or the damaged proteins in the brain that cause Alzheimer's disease. And I say to people who are listening to your podcast and conversation, start early with your children. Right. We, we, we shared a study that at age 12, obese uh, children that were uh, obese had white matter disease. Right. And now it's not about obesity. We're not shaming or anything. It's, 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 it's just knowing that there is a massive metabolic process going in the body that affects the brain more than anything else. So, yeah. Right. Uh, somebody's asking if you do, uh, if you uh, work with people that have epilepsy or seizure disorders, and do you guys do any kind of telemedicine or is it just in person? We definitely are in the process of creating a telemedicine uh, program. We are so proud to actually have the uh, Healthy Minds Institute, which was in combination with beach cities and other places where we'll see patients uh, online with lifestyle and everything um, uh, within the next couple of months. Um, and uh, yeah, we would love to uh, talk to people who are interested. Nice. Uh, by the way, it's that, that institute is a non-for-profit. So it's going to help with the Healthy Minds Institute throughout the country. Okay, I'll, I will post the link again. And Heather wants to know, how does meditation and mindfulness help with focus? Oh, um, it's, it's one of the best ways to develop the habit and also strengthen the part of the brain that is responsible for focusing. So the act of calming your mind down and focusing on one thing, whether it's your breath going in and out or a picture or a thought or a name, whatever it is, it, it helps the brain calm down, it gets rid of all the noise, and it's essentially like a biceps curl for the brain. Um, you know, we have these centers in the brain, the precuneus, which is responsible for focusing and attention. And during meditation, that part of the brain actually strengthens, which improves memory, which improves concentration, which actually helps us even get rid of bad stress eventually. Um, we are we are so uh, pro meditation, but you know it doesn't have to be you sitting down on the ground with your legs crossed. I mean, yeah, it's great if you actually can do that or want to do that. But even you know mm -hmm. spending a minute or three minutes in a calm place in your home where you can stop thinking about everything else and just focus on your breath in and out, that is a that is a profoundly positive action for your brain. You have a you have a humongous factory in the brain, humongous factory that's there to serve your purposes. And all we use it is for simple little things like uh, Candy Crush, which is, uh, you know, I'm not putting down Candy Crush. I know there's gonna be huge backlash from the Candy Crush uh, community, but let's do that. <laughs> this machine, if done in linear focus, goal-directed way, organizes them emotional, behavioral uh, habits, there's a whole thing we talk about habit, habit creation. Yet the doorway is this small mm -hmm. and the doorway is getting smaller and smaller. So you keep missing it as we get older for two reasons. One is the habit, the focus centers are shrinkage, shrinking and also because of life's multitasking noise and everything else. What if you're able to open that doorway 
yeah. way more than you ever had in life. I'm not talking about these, these, I hate these words like biohacking and this hacking. No, no, just no such thing. physiologic, <laughs> opening up the gates of focus wide enough where now you have incredible access to this incredible brain. Uh, and the, we, we were showing, watching this incredible show. We love it. Um, uh, Queen's Gambit is yeah. a, a chess uh, show about chess. Beautiful. Uh, people who can actually play multiple people at the same time. Yeah. It's not necessarily genius. It's actually, they've developed that level of focus. I'm not, of course, I'm simplifying it. So building focus through meditation, but people even lose the objective of meditation. They think it's the whole, the, the clothes and the sitting in a certain place and this and no, or the mantra. It's about building that capacity, not just during that period of meditation. We actually say that period of meditation is for you to add, to get access to that kind of thinking, to that kind of feeling to that kind of being, and then bringing it to every part of your life. That's why we say meditation of dishwashing, which is as banal as it gets, but that's what it's about. Nice. Uh, Melissa says, how do you account for very early onset dementia, like in people in their 30s? Yeah, no, so there is a percentage of people that develop Alzheimer's disease, about 3% of people, um, and the genes have been studied and they've been identified. Um, the three genes that are prominent are called presenilin-1, presenilin-2, and amyloid precursor protein. So if people have these genes, they are going to develop it, and they develop it at a very young age. And, and it's quite unfortunate, and there's no treatment for it. Um, but I just wanted to emphasize that that's a small percentage of Alzheimer's disease. 3% of Alzheimer's disease. And then there are others that get dementia for other reasons, traumatic brain injury, uh, strokes, um, uh, metabolic diseases, long-term metabolic diseases. Like but diabetes. diabetes. Yeah, but uncontrolled, severe, yeah, uncontrolled. Correct. Yeah, right. Um, Charla wants to know if you're hearing any effects on the brain of people with COVID infections. Yes. Um, matter of fact, I'm actually seeing a lot of uh, post-COVID cognitive impairment in clinic nowadays, and it's a completely new condition and, uh, and uh, a situation. And um, it has to do a lot with obviously the stress of going through the disease, but we're learning more and more about, you know, some of the inflammatory and the oxidative damage that is being done to the brain during uh, this COVID infection. Um, uh, there's been some papers that were published in JAMA. Um, there was a comment written about it in, uh, in Lancet as well. Um, they haven't really identified any biomarkers of what causes it, but yes, it is a legitimate diagnosis and we are seeing it quite often now, unfortunately. Wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Jackie says, does do omega do omega-3s affect the brain? And are there any natural supplements that will help with cognitive function? Maybe you could just talk about supplements in general now. Yeah, definitely. So um, of all the fats, omega-3 fatty acids are critical. Um, you know, cholesterol is not needed for the brain, saturated fat is definitely not needed. Um, but the only fat that is needed on a regular basis are omega-3 fatty acids. Now, there is a little bit of controversy about it, and there's been a lot of back and forth and fights, <laughs> even in the plant-based world about it. Um, but, you know, we say if you can get your uh, omega-3 fatty acids from flax seeds, 
from chia seeds, from walnuts, that's fantastic. A lot of the studies showed that high doses of, of omega-3 fatty acids are needed for the brain, and especially not for people who already have cognitive impairment, but for people who don't have it but are at a higher risk. The number of whether it's one gram or four gram hasn't really been uh, identified specifically. Dean and I just got done writing an extensive systematic review paper of looking at 20 years worth of papers for children and for elderly. Two papers. Uh, In fact, she just submitted it to the journal today. Right before I got online, I submitted one of them on the Uh, the, journal. The children one. Uh, So uh, omega-3s and fats in in the developing brain. And the second one is omega-3 and fats in the aging brain. So can't wait to share the paper with you, um, Chef Agent, with everyone else. But, you know, bottom line is um, not everybody needs it. It's, there, it's during specific times of life that, are, that they're critically important, especially during um, childhood where the brain development occurs and right around midlife before you know, cognitive impairment sets in or if people have higher risk for it. Um, and for people who are not getting enough, we're, we're not completely against taking in uh, omega-3 supplements, algae-based of course, because they're low in mercury, they're low in other toxic compounds that fish carry. Um, but again, this is this is a, an area that we're learning more and more about it. As you can see, I mean, we, we, I hate absolutists, and and we're developing a lot of absolutists in plant-based world as well. And 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 people think that couching yourself is some kind of weakness. It's not. This is science. We did the biggest reviews, and at the end of it, we kind of came up with the idea that. For most people, it's not needed. They can get it from the food. The studies are kind of weak, but there's some directional evidence that, especially in the developing brain, we should be a little more aware of omega-3. So if people are going to supplement it, 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 it's not a bad idea. Same thing in the aging brain. So uh, that's the level of data. I mean, I'm not going to make it binary. Um, Binary people are scourge on this planet. Right. And as far as other supplements are concerned, all of the studies have come back to show that, you know, we don't need supplements if we're eating a healthy diet. Um, They don't prevent Alzheimer's, they don't prevent other types of dementias, and they definitely don't reverse it. So all these infomercials that people see late at night about I shouldn't take names, right? No, No, we're not going to (laughs) take names of the supplements, but they're they're meaningless and they're just a scam and people should not fall for them. Uh, B12 is important, right. extremely B12 important. For, for Check your levels. Yeah. Check for everybody, actually 41% of general population. Exactly. Check exactly. your levels. Check your levels of vitamin D. We thought that vitamin D in California would be no problem. 15% of our patients have vitamin D deficiency. Right. So just check your levels. And if it's low, first find out why. Yeah. Then get it from food and sun. And then if all of that is you know, uh, uh, unab- unable to make the change, then get supplements. But that's the last resort. Wow. You know, I, I apologize for keeping you a bit longer. Uh, there's just the questions are coming in like the, you know, it's like a New York a stock ticker tape. It must be the looks. <laughs> no, you're just what well, we announced you in advance and you're very, very uh, beloved <laughs> and popular. And so there's a couple of questions on what do you think about luminosity or is it lumos? I don't know. Luminosity. luminosity other apps, are they helpful? <clears throat> Here's the app that I have. Do you mind if I? No. Go to your local music store, buy a guitar, and learn how to play guitar. Or piano. Or piano. <laughs> or ukulele. Or ukulele. Yes. Yeah. Um, go to, um, at, you know, to find a neighbor that speaks French or Spanish and start learning French or Spanish. 
get online, don't go to the neighbor right now, you know, I know. <laughs> go online and create a group, a book club. And, and I, I'm not just saying that haphazardly, it's much more powerful. Agreed. This contrived, there will be a time, let me, I'm not a past protector. I've actually spoken about past protectors and future seekers. The battle of humanity is about past protectors and future seekers. No, 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 I'm not. There will be a time where AI and all that will come with tools that were for you particularly, chef, They'll find the cognitive domains you need the best help with and we'll give it to you and we'll, you'll be exponentially better. We're not even close to that. Right now, we have something just as good, which is real life activities that you've chosen around your proclivities that are complex. And if the social component to it, even better, get online, make a book club, read a book, discuss it. That involves your language centers, your frontal lobe, your processing centers, your right prior lobe, your, your uh, creativity centers, your visual, where I'm looking at you, making sure that my hair is in the right place. And you know, all of this stuff, that's all of the brain. Forget about lumosity. Well, I'm not, I hope I don't get sued by them, by lumosity or any of these things. There's no, there's no data that is helpful. I mean, you know, for such a large company, they would have definitely published it if they saw people getting better. Uh, but they don't. Um, and it's, again, it's like one of those mindless scrolling that you get involved with and only one part of your brain being activated. We did a big meta-analysis, which is a very painful study where we bring everybody else's data and do the research on that. In 2018, we published and we found purpose, complexity, which is real life complex behaviors and, and challenge. Push yourself to the next level, to the next level. That is the highest level of protection for the brain. Great. So uh, Karen's saying, what do you recommend for stress? I'm, and she says, especially during the pandemic, I'm already exercising vigorous daily. For stress, I think the most important one is perception of what is good stress and what is bad stress. Not all stress is bad. Identifying your good stresses, you know, things like going to school, learning a new language, learning a new musical instrument, keep those, increase those. And as far as bad stresses are concerned, it's tough to actually, for me to, to we're actually creating a, a complete, you know, course and a script on, on how to reduce stress because it's such a huge issue right now. But briefly, I think there are several ways to reduce stress. Things that are not under our control, things that have no timelines, things that have no end to them. No purpose. I, no purpose at all. I think we should try to eliminate them as much as possible or kind of distance ourselves from them, delegate it, completely get rid of it. But then if, you know, if you can't really do anything about it, then changing our own mindset to, um, to look at them as a way of just strengthening ourselves, like as, our, as if our body is actually getting ready to take on this activity or this goal of managing things and, and dealing with it. It's, so it's, it's almost like a, um, a shift in the script of how you see something as bad stress. That's very important. It's all about perception. They actually did studies on individuals, two groups. Um, they were given the same task, but one group was told that this is a terrible thing. You're going to be a, you know, stressed about it and it's going to affect you negatively. And then the second group, they told them, no, this is really good for you. You're going to actually be a better person. You're going to be stronger. So just the change in language actually completely changed how they did during these tasks. The people who had the negative language, their blood pressure went up, their arteries were shrunken and they actually had negative outcomes. But people who had the positive language for that, for that stress level, 
they actually had lower blood pressure, they had more endorphins, better neurochemical stack to help them grow and thrive. So I know this is really, you know, it's easier said than done, but changing the language and perception about an activity helps a lot. What did you write about? No, that's beautiful. That's exactly what I'm I'm kind of summarizing. (laughs) So one of the tasks that we never learn in life is to identify this. So this is our living room, a dining room, and all the walls are painted with whiteboard paint. So we can write anywhere, the kids. So um, we never learn to identify the stressors specifically and measurably. So, oh, I'm stressed and just this language and this feeling which creates this um, uh, um, fight or flight state that continues throughout the body. And, and when you have that fight or flight state, which is your, uh, your interpretation in your limbic system sends message to hypothalamus, which sends message to your pituitary. And if it's a bad message, bad feeling, your thyroid is controlled by there. Your immune system is controlled there. Your stress hormones are controlled there. Your uh, uh, growth hormone is controlled there. Your, your sex hormones, everything is controlled by pituitary hormones that are released. So what determined that release or chaotic release was how you interpreted that stress or the chronicity of that stress. So here's the first thing you do. For the next three months, learn how to identify the stressors specifically and measurably. Mm -hmm. I don't like my job is not a specific measurable thing. I don't like the morning reports because I don't have any input in them. That's very specific. So then when you've identified five, six, 10 specific measurable bad stressors or this job, this part of it doesn't serve my higher purpose in life. And then the good stressors, they serve your purpose. That's where you wanna be in the future. They're, they're measurable, achievable, data. Then you work towards increasing, empowering, and tooling the good stressors for the rest, for the next year, reducing, delegating, and eliminating the bad stressors. Literally at the center of our program, at the center of our life is stress management. Because if you don't do that, forget about changing diet. Forget mm-hmm. about creating a program around exercise. Forget, forget about sleep, because sleep, number one thing that affects sleep, stress. Forget about mental activity and challenge. So it has to start with specific, measurable, and the language. So now that you've done that exercise, now there are still five, six, 10 activities that you you don't like, but you have to do. Then you create positive language around that that says, okay, I don't like these, but as I empower the good stressors, these things serve my higher purpose later. And you reinforce that. And then that becomes a habit, a mental habit. That without that mental habit of positive, achievable, proactive, uh, productive activities that are measurable, all we're doing is throwing things at people. It's the next talking head. It's the next. We and 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 you are the most successful person in the, in this field. There are some others as well, but you, because you've done this, mm-hmm. uh, because you've given people ways of actually achieving specifically. So I love the question of stress, especially during COVID time. Because it's not just about meditation. Sorry, Aisha saying come back to the center. It's it's about life management. Great. We have a question. Do you recommend people get a carotid ultrasound to assess the health of the arteries? Um, I suppose if there's no indication for it and if the person doesn't have any um, symptoms, there's really no need. I mean, it's it's not recommended <clears throat> as a screening diagnostic. 
Um, does it give us information about how the, bra uh, the brain is doing? To a certain extent, there are certain people who may have carotid disease, but they may not actually have intracranial atherosclerosis, which means hardening of the arteries in their brain and vice versa. They may have hardening mm -hmm. of the arteries in their brain and their large arteries may be clean. That's actually more common even. That's very common actually. So no, I don't think it's actually going to be helpful. Great. And Dina wants to know, could engaging in art and painting be as helpful to the brain as much as learning to play an instrument? Oh, of course. I mean, the arts are one of the most beautiful ways of activating the brain because multiple domains are involved. Vision, emotion, memory, creativity, decision, judgment. So it's, it's a fantastic activity. Right. Amanda says, how do we get the Alzheimer's Association to work on educating people at their walks? Um, I think they're doing that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm being kind. I've, they've started <laughs> doing that. Um, it, there was a time where they were completely, you know, just ignoring the importance of lifestyle. But in the last two years, the main plenary talk at their conference was about lifestyle. It actually started with lifestyle. Um, so we do see that shift now. Great. And uh, just a couple more questions. One is, uh, do vaccines affect brain health? And I, I, I think this person meant in general, not necessarily one that's coming up for COVID. There's no evidence that vaccines for prevention of infectious diseases affects the brain health. As a matter of fact, it can actually even prevent diseases that may cause encephalopathies and infections of the brain. Terrific. And there's a question, what do you think of liquid cleanses using celery and something called the CERT diet, which I've never heard of? Just eat the celeries, forget about the cleanse diet. <laughs> yes. Well, you guys are great. There's a recommendation. They want you to write a book on parenting because they say you have extraordinary children. Oh, that's very kind of you. Oh, we're, we're blessed. No, we're, we really are lucky to have good kids. They're, I mean, like, did you make your kids do these things? Like, like I can, you know, think, cause you're both, both neurologists and like, did you make sure they learned an instrument, learned a language paint? I mean, like, did you help their brains develop to the degree they did because of your profession? We kind of did. I mean, as every parent plans, right? So we planned, uh, the first thing is stress management, which is still a, a thing that we work on on a daily basis. Yeah. Our kids are a little precocious, so they've, they've, they're actually doing very well and they're in college and stuff. And, and the main thing that we worry about is stress and anxiety. And we, we kind of tell them, I mean, they're very young and they're in college and say, I don't care about your, your school. What I care about is your creativity and enjoy, enjoyment of growth. But stress management is first. Stress management is first. And then, of course, nutrition is a natural part of our life. Aisha is not just a uh, researcher. She's also a cook. And so all our food, every day there's a beautiful experiment we go through with food. And uh, most often they're, they're amazing. Uh, exercises, we, we believe in bringing exercise in the living space. So, yeah, those, those, those things. But still the same challenges of any parent uh, uh, that we have, uh, that everybody else has, we have as well. Yeah. Didn't, aren't they in college at a very young age? Like, isn't that, all right. Yes, uh, yes, they, they both got in college. There's, a, there's an early entrance program and they both got in at age uh, 13, so. Oh um, my God, I didn't go to college till I was 30. <laughs> we're <laughs> still in college. We're still in college, yes. Yeah, we're still taking classes. And, oh um, my God, that's extraordinary. Wow, yeah. that, that, well, maybe I'll have them on the show and they can kill, tell us the same. They, they have a book on health. Uh, oh, they would be, yeah, they, yeah. Would, they would love What's, to speak uh, with you. Yeah, them. they have a book on health in Amazon. Um, uh, it's a super me. Yeah, it, it's plant based. It's it's lifestyle, and they have a social media presence. The they're science called kids. the science kids. So. Well, I definitely if they are up to it, I'd love to have them on. They sound extraordinary. 
Oh, they would love to speak. They would love you. to speak. Yeah, yeah. And the people just don't want to let you go. We, we keep getting more and more viewers. <laughs> and they just, so I'll ask the last question. I think you mentioned it, but coffee, coffee and coffee. Just when we think of coffee, we've got to think of alcohol. So are these good for the brain, bad for the brain, neutral? Right. Again, coffee, it just depends, right? Um, for people who have uh, high blood pressure or vascular spasms or they have anxiety or some sort of, uh, um, you know, heart arrhythmia problems, mm -hmm. coffee is the worst thing for them because it exacerbates all those negativities. But then if people are healthier, maybe a cup of coffee, coffee doesn't really hurt them. And the studies have actually shown us that, you know, a cup of coffee, especially if it doesn't have cream or sugar in it, uh, it can actually, um, the, the anti-inflammatory compounds in coffee may be beneficial for brain health. But we have a very unhealthy relationship with coffee, especially in this country. We just drink too much of it. And also we add so much sugar and cream to it. So the, those benefits of those anti-inflammatories are completely negated. Wow. Well, you guys are just, it's so fun talking. Oh, and, and, and alcohol, uh, I'm going to end in a very unpopular note. <laughs> They, they teach you to always end in an unpopular. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, there's no amount of alcohol that's healthy. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, the yeah. benefits that are seen in small amounts uh, are more, more have to do with the conviviality and anxiety reduction than in the alcohol itself or the polyphenols or the resveratrol or anything like that. So um, that's, yeah, sorry. Well, I, I don't know, you know, that may be unpopular with some, but a lot of the people that follow me, that 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 is the popular answer. So we Perfect. thank you. Is <laughs> everybody saying they want the Sherzai kids on? Why don't I have them on? Because I'm just hearing about them today. <laughs> I did not know, but I will definitely contact them. I just found their book on Amazon. And guys, thank you so much. I love what you do. And, and we really, love what I, you guys, do. You guys look, how do you look so, that's what I want to know. I want to know your beauty secrets, because every time I see you, you really do. You're both going backwards. Oh, you're very kind. I'm, I'm so thankful to sit next to her because they are not even seeing me. That's why. I did that. <laughs> well, she, you, she is gorgeous. I got to yeah, say. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. That's Absolutely. very kind of you. Chef AJ, we, we love, love you. you. You're amazing. You do such wonderful things and we're so happy to be connected with you. And um, let's change the world together. Let's change the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Team Shirzai. Thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back at 2 p.m. today when I have another fabulous doctor all the way from Hawaii, Dr. Jen Hawk. Love you, Shirzai. Take care. Bye.